Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the book of Revelation, chapters one through five. What an amazing book that we get to jump into today. And we'll have three weeks to study this incredible book written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And he has so many incredible symbols that he packs into this book that it has become a fascination for many uh, students of the scriptures over 2,000 years. And it's important, there, there are a variety of things that we need to set in place before we actually dive in to the actual text to better understand what we're going to read. First thing we would mention is the name, the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Often people refer to this book as the Revelations, and you'll notice it's just, it's just one panoptic vision of John, and he writes it down, so it's just the singular, the Revelation of St. John. In other English translations of the Bible, you will notice that it doesn't come through as the Revelation. It's actually named the Apocalypse. Now, because of that name, the word Apocalypse has taken on a very negative, very scary connotation in our culture, in our society today. You use the word Apocalypse and people start thinking of earthquakes and destruction and death and famine, which is all part of this book. But the, the message of that name is really beautiful in the Greek. Yeah, so it comes from two words. It actually literally means the uncovering. In fact, if you just put that into your scriptures, the uncovering, the whole purpose of this vision or revelation is to uncover truth about God's plan for humanity and how God reveals himself to people and invites them back to his throne to worship him forever and ever. So that changes from a, from a negative, scary, fearful, or fear-inducing connotation to a very uh, vision-granting, uh, this to, to lay bare, to uncover, to make clear. It, you, God is letting us in the, the back room, so to speak, to see the, the beginning from the end, these things that are unfolding, so that when these, granted, scary things happen in the world, we don't end up getting more fearful and wrapped up in anxiety, but rather we say, huh, this is exactly what God said would happen. We're, we're marching forward in time as God has shown the prophets that things would unfold. So, if you look at it from that uh, angle, the entire set of scriptures are literally an apocalypse. They're an uncovering, an unveiling. But this particular book happens to be uh, special in that John is the one who was appointed to write these words. Many of you will remember in the Book of Mormon, when Nephi has his wonderful vision, his panoptic vision, the view of everything, that he was ready to write some additional things, and remember the Spirit constrained him not to write those because he was told, no, 
That's not your role. That role has been given to John, my, my apostle, my servant, who will write this at a later date, six centuries after Nephi. So it's, it's kind of neat to see if you read Nephi's vision and you read the revelation of John to see that Nephi saw many similar things, but he's going to use different words, different ways to describe the parts where there is a little bit of crossover. It's just fun to, to triangulate the, these prophetic writings. And we invite you to remember the purpose here is to help people to know God. And even though there are some fantastic images and things that might be a bit confusing, we just invite you, don't, don't allow yourself to drown in feeling overwhelmed, but just look for Jesus and look for how is God trying to help us to be at peace? I'll use a brief metaphor. If you've ever read a really gripping but intense book, or perhaps a really intense or dramatic movie, and you're kind of the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen, and there's all sorts of tension, possibly chaos, you're like, I wonder how it's going to end. Imagine if somebody had given you kind of a high-level overview in advance of how the story was going to map out and really how things were going to end. You could still watch the movie, still feel the emotional tension, but no, this is all going to work out. And this is what God is trying to let us know, that he will uncover truth. He will let us in to understand his overall plans, even if the symbols that John uses perhaps are a little confusing at times. Just know God has a plan. He is in charge. So one, one year I was at a conference um, of biblical scholars and I went to a session on the book of Revelation and, and I, I really appreciated the way that this particular presenter began. He said, you know, you could sum up the entire book of Revelation in four words. And I was excited, okay, what are his four words going to be? And he said, they are, God wins, Satan loses. That's the entire book in a nutshell. And he says, if, you, if that's too many words and you need to really just narrow it down to summing the book up in two words, then he said, the book of Revelation is God wins. That's it. That is the whole message of this book. There's a lot of the devil fighting against the work of God, but you see that God triumphs and prevails and overcomes in every single uh, instance. Now, some things to also keep in mind as we dive in to the book of Revelation is the symbolic nature and the way that the book is actually put together. Uh, I am not an expert in Greek, but I know just enough Greek to, to be able to have conversations with some of my colleagues who are experts in Greek. And the consensus is that of all 27 books in the New Testament, in the Greek, because all 27 of those were originally written in Greek, the book of Revelation is by far the poorest grammar. It's the, the worst written in the Greek form. The, it's almost as if somebody, uh, the comparison is if a missionary learns a foreign language and two or three or four months into the mission, you then ask that missionary to write a long book like Revelation in that foreign language. The reality is, is they're going to be able to write some, some words. They're going to be able to construct the sentences in such a way that they can mostly communicate what they're trying to say, 
but it's not polished in comparison to something like the book of Hebrews, which is the most polished of all of the, the Greek texts in the New Testament. Which, if you stop and think about that, if John, who when he was a disciple of Christ was probably illiterate, and we're told in John or in Acts chapter 4 that he and Peter were both illiterate at that point, but he's learned enough, he's progressed enough in his knowledge of the language that many years later when he's, when he's exiled, he's alone from his friends and scribes and people who could help him on the island of Patmos, so he's writing this vision without the aid of people who normally would help him. For instance, if he's writing his gospel or his letters, well, now he's isolated, and it just makes sense. So, the fact that sometimes it's, it's a little more difficult to understand, it could be due to its symbolic nature, but it could also be due to the fact that the, the less polished Greek writing is a little harder to interpret. In, interpret and translate into English, and so you can get translators saying, I'm not sure what he meant here, so we translate it in a way that leaves everybody confused for, for a time. So don't be frustrated with that process. Reminds me a bit of Moroni, who also is this last prophet, he's on his own, and he also says things. We don't have John the Revelator saying this, but Moroni does say, please don't judge us for how we write. Like, if somebody asked me to write a book that millions of people might read in 2,000 years, I might be saying that regularly. Please excuse me because I am I'm just a simple person who still struggles with the English grammar. <laughs> you know, I love that, Taylor, because to me, there's a lesson for us today in, in what you just said. If you stop and think about this from a, from a heavenly or an eternal perspective, God gave this mission to write this revelation, all of these prophecies and, and this vision, he gave that mission to John. He didn't give it to the, the most polished Greek theologian or Greek playwright of the day or the person who, who was the most gifted with words. He gave it to a man who was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ who had prepared himself to the best of his ability to be an instrument in the hands of the Lord, and though it may not be beautiful in the Greek, he did the best he could, and God takes that and he makes it shine for all of us. And there are things that we still don't understand collectively, and that's okay. In the work of God, he gives you assignments, not because you're the best in the world at that, not because you're the most gifted, but because you're willing to take that. And perhaps before you were born, perhaps you raised your hand and said, Lord, here am I, send me. I will do that task. And as John was appointed from before the foundation of the world to do this task, perhaps you and I should spend less time worrying about how we're not qualified, but rather just move forward and do the best we can and know that God is able to do his work if we're willing to, to, to put our best efforts out there. Now, Joseph Smith, in the early days of the church, he and many of the early saints was also, and they were also fascinated with the book of Revelation to one degree or another. And at one point, Joseph says this, 
in, you, you can find this in the Joseph Smith papers online. He says, quote, we can never comprehend the things of God and of heaven, but by revelation. We may spiritualize and express opinions to all eternity, but that is no authority. Now listen to what he says next. O ye elders of Israel, hearken to my voice, and when you are sent into the world to preach, tell those things you are sent to tell. Preach and cry aloud, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Declare the first principles, and let mysteries alone, lest you be overthrown. Never meddle with the visions of beasts and subjects you do not understand. He, he said that uh, a little later in this quote, he says he wished that the elders would leave the revelation alone and stop trying to preach the revelation of St. John and just teach the first principles of the gospel because they were, they were getting off into mysteries, not mysteries of godliness, but mysteries of symbolism, and it was a distraction. Ironically, in 1843, a year before Joseph's uh, death, he says, quote, the book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. Now, it sounds like a, a discrepancy here, but the reality is, is this is coming from Joseph Smith, the prophet, the seer of the Lord. And as Joseph reads the book, and with the advantage of already having had a a Q&A, a question and answer session with the Lord, which is now Doctrine and Covenant section 77. He reads the Revelation, and to him, it is absolutely very plain and very clear. And he says, whenever God gives a vision of an image or beast or figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give us the interpretation of that. And he says, you don't need to worry about being damned because you don't understand what something means. He says, if God gives the vision, he holds himself responsible to give you the interpretation. And sometimes the interpretation doesn't come right away. Sometimes we have to wrestle and struggle and keep working with the things that we do understand until the timing is right for God to reveal that's what that meant, or for events to transpire, for us to then connect the dots, for it to be uncovered and made clear. Yeah, I appreciate these insights, Tyler. I will confess that um, I trust that Joseph Smith is telling the truth when he says it's a very plain book. I also confess that I sometimes still find myself confused at things, and I have just had to be comfortable that I don't always understand and get everything that's going on in this book. And that's fine with me because there are many other revelations, plural, not revelation, this book, from God that are clear about what really matters in life, that I can have faith in Jesus Christ, that I can trust that as I repent and seek him at the table of sacrament, I can be forgiven of my sins, cleansed, that the spirit can be with me. And fundamentally, that is the basics. And those things I know, those things are clearly taught, and so if I don't understand every symbol in here, it's okay. I think I've been taught well enough by good teachers throughout the church to understand the things that really do matter. So as we now dive into the actual words, um, check out chapter one, verse one. Look at the very first words written. The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
Did, did you catch that? The title of the book is The Revelation of St. John the Divine, that title given by the King James translators. But the verse 1 says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love how everything in the New Testament this year, if we, if we look with the right lenses on, focuses our attention on Jesus Christ, not on the people. The people, whether it be John or Peter or Paul or Mary or Mary Magdalene or any of the other people in these stories, those are supporting cast to the main character. And the main character throughout is Jesus Christ. So this, this book could probably more accurately be renamed as the revelation of Jesus Christ as given to his apostle John. That would be a more accurate title. But he, he says here in the rest of verse 1, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So we could even take it one step further. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. He's getting it from God the Father, given to the Son, who is then giving it to his servants, pertaining to things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So you could add the angel in as another mediator in this process. So what began with God comes to us through Jesus Christ, an angel, and then the prophet. And then here we are in, the, in this chain of revelation. Now, if you look at this middle phrase in verse 1, it says, he's going to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So, if you go from John's time, late first century, God is going to show him things which would shortly come to pass after that point. So, Joseph Smith made this very clear that the first three chapters of Revelation you don't have to be confused about what John is seeing, what he's uncovering, what he's revealing to us is things that are going to happen in the late first century, early second century. It's things that are shortly going to come to pass. Now contrast that with chapter 4 verse 1. And in a very specific geographic location. Correct. We're talking about like the Eastern Roman Empire. We're not talking about India, Australia, South America. It's very localized to the Christian community that is there in the Eastern Roman Empire, what is now modern Turkey, Greece, places like that. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, it says, after this, so he, it's almost as if this vision of things shortly come to pass is now closed. I looked and behold, a door was open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me. And he said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And it's indeterminate. It's That's indeterminate, and the location now becomes much broader. And Joseph Smith said, if you take Revelation 4 through the end of the book, now it becomes more global, and it's referring to the, the history as well as the future of the the unfolding gospel of Jesus Christ in various dispensations in various locations. So, that's a simple um, a simple help in the text so that we don't get lost in some of the symbols and perhaps, as Joseph said, people misapply them 
uh, because they're looking in the wrong place. They're looking for, at the wrong time, especially in these first three chapters. So let's pick up verse 2 and 3, the, the conclusion of his introduction to the vision. Verse 2, speaking of John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Did you notice scripture, revelation, visions given to prophets, truth given from God to the Savior through angels to the prophets? None of that matters to, to you if you don't read, hear, and then keep the sayings that are given. God is not giving these revelations to answer curiosity questions. He's giving these revelations to encourage, motivate, provide opportunities for us to move forward in a covenant connection with him. And so it's important to keep that in mind as you study in all of our debates and all of our discussions about what different symbols might mean with different groups of people through time. If it doesn't ultimately lead to, therefore, what am I supposed to do to be a better disciple of Christ? Then we're probably on our own in those debates, and we're probably we could keep debating for as long as as the earth lasts and still be none the wiser, or perhaps no more a Christian. That's right. So now let's jump in. Yeah, verse four is interesting because immediately you get this word seven. Now that's one you can write down. The word seven is a symbol for perfection and completion. And John uses this extensively throughout these writings. And the first thing he talks about is seven churches. Think about maybe seven wards. And he's sending this letter to each of these seven wards or churches in what is called Asia or a portion of what is now modern day Turkey. He wants them to know what God has revealed to them, to him, and he gives them specific instructions that each ward or church will need to encourage them in specific challenges they may face. So, as we, Taylor introduced us now to this first symbol, which is the number seven, and it's the first of hundreds of symbols that are going to show up in the book of Revelation. Let me, we've done this before. We did this uh, last year in, in Isaiah, but it's worth repeating to set the stage as we now go quickly through some of these remaining chapters. I want to demonstrate something for you. I want you to think in your mind of how would you describe that and come up with as many ways as possible in say 60 seconds that if you had to, to talk to somebody, how you would describe that. Chances are, most of your, your minds are instantly going to words like instrument, keys, black and white, uh, music, all of these amazing things that it creates uh, moods that you can accompany people, all of these words. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. What did I do? I wrote this word on the board and I asked you to describe this. I didn't ask you to describe what this word represents. That wasn't the, the prompt. The prompt was describe this to somebody. Now, if we wanna be literal, 
then we would say, oh, well, this is five letters, P-I-A-N-O, and put together in English, we've all agreed that it's pronounced piano. And that word represents this musical instrument that everybody instantly started describing. You'll notice how quickly and how naturally your brain shifted from the symbols on the page, or in this case, on the board, to the object, the actual reality of what those symbols represent. There is no music coming off the whiteboard. There are no keys on this whiteboard. There is no music here. These are just symbols. So what I'm trying to demonstrate is the fact that you already have the skill set to be able to make the jump from the symbolic to what the symbolic is representing and the various types of pianos. There are grand pianos, there are baby grand pianos, there are upright pianos, there are old, there are new, there are big, there are small, there are electronic. There are lots of ways that you can interpret that one set of symbols. Same thing with the book of Revelation. Often when you get into Hebrew symbolism, there are layers upon layers upon layers of potential ways that that symbol could bring value and meaning and motivation to an individual. And it might be different for you than it is for somebody else, and that's okay. Ultimately, there's going to be one uh, intent that the author had, but it doesn't mean that there can't be multiple layers of potential application for that symbol. So, Taylor gave you the number seven, which is a symbol for completion, perfectness, lacking nothing. It's whole. It's like the seven days of creation. So you'll notice as we jump into the book of Revelation, you're going to see that number come up again and again and again. In the events, the seven seals, the seven angels, the seven vials or bowls, the seven trumpets, the seven heads, the seven horns. You've got all kinds of repeats of seven. Another complete number that you get in the book of Revelation is the number 10. You've got 10 fingers. You've got 10 toes. It's a, it's a complete set. Another one is 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chooses 12 apostles. It's, it's a beautiful symbol. You have the number four that represents the earth among other things, the four corners of the earth, the four quarters of the earth, the every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Usually when scriptures symbolically referring to fallen humanity and earth, it's probably going to come to you in a number four, somehow, some way. The number three is a beautiful symbol for the Godhead, for heaven, which is beautiful when you put three and four together. When heaven meets earth, that's where we get perfection. That's where we get completion and wholeness. It's not in the isolation. So that's just a really quick uh, run through of some of the symbols of the numbers that we're going to face as we move forward. And we're going to begin with him addressing seven churches, as Taylor already mentioned, in Eastern, or sorry, in Western Turkey um, in the first century. So let's read this verse four. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, that's modern day Turkey or a portion of Western Turkey today, 
grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God, and his Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you're writing a letter to somebody, you might write, dear so-and-so. And dear is like a term of endearment. You say something kind and endearing to somebody that you're speaking to. And John is doing something similar where he's re- writing to these seven churches, but it's also directed towards Jesus and declaring key things that he has done for us. And if you get nothing else out of Revelation, perhaps you can walk away with a reminder of what we know about Jesus Christ. Listen to this again. He loved us, verse 5, washed us, thereby making us kings and queens and priests and priestesses. Absolutely powerful. So why is this revelation being given? To remind people that God himself has died for all of us, washed all of us, if we are willing to receive it through repentance, and thereby we become like him, kings or queens, priests or priestesses. And so, yes, as we move forward, there's lots of symbols, but remember the purpose of this book, and really all revelation, is to remind you of your true identity as you accept the true identity of Jesus Christ. So now we jump into verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Most of you are already aware of the fact that in the Greek alphabet, the 22 letters of the Greek alphabet, you get Alpha and you get Omega. That's the equivalent in English of our A and Z. It's the beginning of the alphabet and the ending of the alphabet. He's saying, I I got you covered. there's, there's nobody outside of the realm of my power and my love and my dominion. And why this matters is that Jesus is described as the author and finisher of our faith. You can't be a full author if you only have access to half the alphabet. I mean, what book could you write? But if you have the totality of every letter and you have mastered every letter and you are the owner and creator of every letter, you can author and finish any story, which again, the book of Revelation is kind of this high-level overview of God's story of salvation, of how eventually he will overcome the devil and all chaos and invite us into his throne room where he sits, where there is peace and prosperity. And John, this is the second time he's used the phrase here in verse 8. He, he said it over in verse 4, speaking of, of Jesus Christ. Um, when he uses this phrase, the Lord which is, which was, and which is to come. You'll notice the spread of time, that he's not bound by time. He's not limited. He's not uh, boxed in by time. He was, he is, and he is to come, the Almighty. He is powerful, and we would add all-loving as well. So now verse 9 says, I, John, 
who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, it was not, um, it was not a healthy thing uh, for your safety and your physical well-being to be a practicing devoted Christian in the first and second century in Turkey uh, back then. And so, there's great tribulation. So, he says, I'm your companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The idea is, is I'm in Patmos because of the word of God and my testimony of Jesus Christ. He's been exiled. If you go to Turkey today and go to Ephesus and you visit the Basilica of St. John, you'll, you'll see some inscriptions, some placards there that describe certain things. One of them fascinated me where it said that uh, multiple attempts had been made on John's life and they couldn't seem to kill him. So, what did they do instead? They sent him to Patmos, this island that was uh, reserved for people that you just don't quite know what to do with in your society. Um, criminals that aren't bad enough to be killed, but you don't want them in your society, you send them to Patmos. People with mental disorders that they didn't, in that day, didn't know how to treat them or how to uh, work with them. So, here he is exiled on the island of Patmos with other people who have also been sent there because society didn't know what to do with them. And he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, so it's a Sunday. And he heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, and we're going to pause just for a moment on that word, trumpet. Now, we live in a modern world that is very loud. If you live in a community, if you don't live out in a rural area, just walk outside at any point during the day. Do you hear vehicles or people or machines that are just making noise? There's just noise everywhere in our world today. And that actually is very rare if you take the totality of human history. Most of human history has been quiet and really only the last 200, 250 years since the time of industrialization have we made all these machines that make a huge amount of noise. So, in the ancient world, and this is, I only learned this recently, one of the ways that God symbolized and signaled for his people that he has arrived, that his presence was near, was loud noise. If you think back to Mount Sinai, when God wanted to reveal himself to his people, it was a massive sound and light show. Now, we do sound and light shows all the time in our day. Now, notice what God has done in our day to signal he's arrived. Quiet. You go to a temple, it is not loud. It is powerful, peaceful and quiet. Well, you would have that all over the place in the ancient world. So, how would God signal that something unusual has happened? A trumpet would be a signal that God has arrived. Let's take Jericho. When the people, the Israelites marched around Jericho and they shouted with a loud voice and a trumpet, it was a symbol that God's presence has arrived. The point here is that in the ancient times, you will see that in many cases, it is loud noise that is a symbol of God's presence. We see that here. In our day, it's been flipped because God is trying to reach us in ways that are unusual, which is quiet, reverence, and peace which we used to have until the industrial age. That's a beautiful insight. Thank you. So, here's the voice as of a trumpet. 
pick up on the fact that you're going to see this repeatedly in the book of Revelation. You're going to see the word as of, or as, or like unto, or like. Words that create this simile, this symbolic metaphor. He's like, I, I don't know how to describe this, but it's kind of like this, or it's as that. It's not that, but it's as that. So that's a sign to us that John is struggling to give us the exact uh, definition of what he's seeing. So he's he's having to go into symbolic mode. So here he hears a voice and he he this loud voice, he compares it, as Taylor said, to the sound of a trumpet, which would be the loudest instrument of their day. It'd be the loudest thing that a human could make noise with. And again, just to continue with this just for a minute, humans could not make loud noise anciently, except if you had a trumpet. What else could you do to make loud noise? Only a god could make loud noise. Nature could do it, and people assume that was God who was doing all that. So again, this is why these symbols are important to understand that today, if you heard a trumpet, you wouldn't immediately think, oh, that clearly represents God. But anciently, it was clear to people, if something is louder than what a human can can make, only God could make noise louder than a human could make. And so, to take that one step further, when a king would arrive or when royalty would arrive, they would often herald the arrival of that king with physical trumpets being blown to, to prepare the way and get everybody's attention and get them to gather in proper reverence and respect for the arrival of that royalty. In this case, uh, think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and what we hear about how trumpets and angels and the, the hosts of heaven will be making these loud noises to prepare the way for his coming. Yeah, they're not going to show up in reverence and quiet. Not on that occasion. So, here's what the voice, this loud voice, so loud that he compares it to a trumpet, says. Verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And then you get the list of those seven churches in the last part of verse 11. And so he turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. There's the seven again. There's the seven again. In this case, you've got seven golden candlesticks. And these are symbols. They're placeholders like the letters P-I-A-N-O were a placeholder for the real musical instruments. So you get these seven golden candlesticks. Think about what they represent these these churches in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white, like wool. There's that like, or the as concept again. As white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. He's having a hard time describing how do you describe the most glorious, resplendent being that you could ever possibly see in words that human mortals in a fallen world could understand? You can see that here he is writing in this language that he's he's not very fluent in writing in. He's struggling to describe this. 
And we use this phrase in English, a picture is worth a thousand words. Some people have said a video is worth a million words. Okay, imagine he has seen a vision. The word video and vision come from the same root word. So he's basically experiencing a million words of, of information. And he's trying to boil it down into about 15 or 20 in halting Greek and perhaps um, not fully formed grammar and, and, uh, and vocabulary. But I love that he's doing it anyway. He is and he's not complaining about it. He is absolutely faithful. I and love he's John. He's going to do the very best he can. Verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. How do you describe the grandeur and the glory of, of God? And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. That message right there, fear not. Remember the, the overarching theme of the book of Revelation? God wins. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see some things that, that might cause your natural tendencies to, to raise up in fear. And here's the Savior with his right hand on John saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. I, I got this. It's not as if bad things are going to happen on, on the earth and the angels up in heaven and the Lord are going to wring their hands together saying, oh no, what are we going to do now? That isn't, that is not the message of this book. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Isn't that fascinating? that through his infinite atonement, Jesus Christ overcame and seized the keys of both death, the grave, and of hell. Spiritual death. The, the two deaths, physical and spiritual death. Just as a side note, it must be, uh, must be very demoralizing not to have the keys to your own house if you're the devil. He doesn't even have the keys to hell. They, they're with the Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't need to be afraid of what the devil has done or what the devil is doing or what the devil threatens to do. Rather than fearing the devil, we need to have faith in Christ who holds the keys to unlock those two, uh, what used to be final uh, monsters, as Jacob refers to them, death and hell. And so now he's being told again in verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen and things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Stop and think about that for just a second symbolically. The church in Ephesus or Smyrna or Philadelphia or Laodicea or any of those seven churches, they are symbolically represented by a placeholder, a candlestick. What does a candlestick do? A candlestick gives light. It gives off a little heat. You come to that and you can absorb some of that heat. You can see things because of the light that, that is illuminating. Think about your experience with the church of Jesus Christ. 
are we going to church just so we can receive the light or do we go to church so that we can add to that light and help others to feel the warmth of the Savior's love and to see the light of his goodness? Uh, we talked about this last week in, in the epistle of 1 John. God is light and God is love. What a beautiful symbol for the church, the role of the church in the building up of the kingdom of God on earth, that the church itself, this candlestick, becomes a symbol for these Christ-like attributes. And so when I go to church, I don't want to go to just absorb and see what I can see. I want to go to see what I can actually contribute to this experience for other people in this candlestick uh, symbolic analogy. And the unity of these churches in their witness and testimony of Jesus Christ creates a perfect or a complete testimony. There are seven of them unified perfectly or in completion, witnessing of the real light, which is Jesus. So now we jump into chapter two and three, which are his personal letters to the leaders of the church in each of those seven locations, these stars and the candlesticks. And you'll notice that we could spend a lot of time in the 2,000-year-old history regarding Smyrna or Pergamos or Ephesus or Thyatira, that, may not be, that might not be as helpful or as applicable to you today as if we took a moment to step back and look at a 30,000-foot overview of these seven specific letters given to these seven churches, because there's a pattern here. You'll notice that God doesn't usually give revelation just to, like we said before, answer curiosity questions. Or simply to entertain people. He, he usually gives revelation when there's a need. And usually the need is driven by what people are doing wrong or adjustments that they need to make. But now watch how God, through this prophet, John, corrects these people. Watch the pattern because there's a lot to be learned as leaders, as parents, as friends, as associates and, and fellow disciples of Christ. Um, the, the pattern is pretty amazing because it gets repeated seven times. Number one, God tells them, I know thy works. In all seven instances, he tells them, I know what you're doing. Basically, I see you. You're not, you might think you're doing things in a way that is secretive and nobody knows. And God's saying, I know exactly everything that you're doing, number one. Number two, he gives good feedback to them. He, he gives them praise. He compliments them on something they're doing well. Now, ironically, that pattern gets broken in the seventh letter, the one to Laodicea. We'll talk about that in a minute. He doesn't give any positive feedback to them, which is an interesting uh, interesting caveat. Tuck that away, we'll come back to it. The third element when working with people that you're trying to, to motivate and correct or turn in a, in a better direction, the third thing is he gives the correction that they need. He tells them what they're doing wrong and what they need to work on or do better. And then number four, he gives them hope and encouragement. 
So did you notice how the correction is sandwiched between positive feedback in six of the seven cases and all seven of the cases giving them hope? He never gives corrective feedback followed by, and you're never going to be able to do this. God doesn't work that way, and neither should parents, and neither should leaders, or companions, or friends. There should always be hope. Never open up a wound too large that you can't sew it back up again to provide healing and, and correction to go in the positive uh, direction that you've outlined. Then the fifth comparison between all seven of these, he uses this phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Which to me, I don't, I don't know how you want to interpret that. There are a variety of ways to look at that phrase, but for me, it feels like the Lord's saying, you have your agency. And if you choose to plug your ears and choose to ignore what I've just told you, that's your choice. I cannot force you to love me. I can't force you to even listen to me. But if you have ears to hear, let him hear is an invitation to tune our ears heavenward rather than to the noises of the world that Taylor was talking about earlier. And then he uh, always finishes with the phrase, he that overcometh, which to me is the most beautiful aspect of these six um, similarities that occur in all seven of these letters. He that overcometh puts our focus where? On Christ, not on me. So if I'm actually going to make these improvements in my life, if I'm actually going to adjust and turn to become a better disciple, a more consecrated follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to do that alone. I'm only going to be able to do that with the help of he that overcometh. And it's not just that Jesus was able to overcome all things in his infinite atonement. It's that he can, to this day, help me be able to bring some of that capacity to now continue to overcome things to this day. His love and his power can be manifest today, this hour in your life and in my life, if we trust him, if we turn to him, if we look to him. So what Tyler has modeled is a pattern that you could apply to study these next couple of chapters. There's other ways of looking at the chapters as well. So as you go through these next couple of chapters, you might want to identify what verses refer to which city or which ward, and then where does that five-part pattern show up in that mini letter to that ward community? And then you might say to yourself, okay, where in my life has God done something similar recently or in the past or in the life of somebody that I have seen? because God often works with similar patterns. And so, yes, it's so inspiring to see what God did for these people anciently. But the invitation is, if you look carefully, you will probably see that God has done something similar for you, where perhaps he didn't use these specific words, but perhaps the conclusion of the five-part pattern at some point in your life was, God overcame on my behalf. So we invite you to see yourself in these scriptures. So, rather than going verse by verse through each of the seven uh, instructions for these seven churches, perhaps let's go through at a skimming level and look at a couple of the, the concepts that are taught that would point us 
to a temple text, this elevating our thoughts to see how the Savior is trying to get them to take their attention off of the world and focus it on heavenly things, on the eternal perspective with God and Jesus Christ at the center of that focal point. Look at verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's connecting us clear back to the beginning of time, before the beginning of earth time in Eden, with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and the promises that Christ will give us to eat of the, tr- the fruit of that tree. And if you look in Alma 32, he gives that beautiful analogy in, in 31 and 32 of the, the planting of the seed and nurturing that seed. And at the end of that process, you notice what comes? A tree of life springing up unto everlasting life. There's the promise. Look down at verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Be faithful unto death, you get a crown of life. Well, the one who ultimately fulfilled that was Jesus Christ. So if we're faithful unto our death, we, we follow his example and we receive in, in place of the struggles of the world, which could be symbolized by his crown of thorns, and it can then be replaced with a crown of life. So you're noticing in every case this exchange of what the, what the world inflicts upon you or what we get from the world, death and misery and hell and all of the, the fallen nature elements, get replaced with these eternal, heavenly, everlasting, beautiful, rewarding elements. The tree of life, the crown of life. Look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So this one's to the people in Pergamos. I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So God is giving all of these promises of things that are going to be granted to these people, the fruit from the tree, the crown of life, the the living manna, the hidden manna, and a stone with a new name. These are incredible gifts. And you go over to the the church in Sardis, verse 4. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You're going to be, verse 5, clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most beautiful promises, is that Jesus will confess our name before God if we are willing to confess his name and God's name before the world today. It's a pretty good exchange rate, I would think. What I love about what we're seeing here, Tyler, is that I think in the popular consciousness that most of us, when we think about the book of Revelation, we think about some fantastical images that are perhaps confusing confusing, and perhaps a bit fear-inducing, how many of us have missed the enormous amount of truth and glory that is packed just into a couple of chapters right here? 
So we hope that as you are in these chapters, you just feel this enlivening that God is not trying to scare us or confuse us. That look at how clear he is expressing himself about what he wants to do for you. He that overcometh, which is Jesus, will give you all things that he has won if you choose to be loyal to him. And to continue this on, look at, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 7 to the saints in Philadelphia. He says, verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Jesus in one place says, I am the door, the door to the sheepfold, and no man can come, the, the, the enemies can't come in to devour. And I've set before you an open door. Where does that open door lead? Into heaven. And you get this beautiful comparison back to the veil of the temple being the flesh of Christ from Hebrews chapter 10, that he is literally the veil, the door, the, the way whereby we enter into heaven, and no man can shut it. No man can put down all of the, the victory that Christ has, has gained or won in our behalf. Look down at verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And then we get to that seventh church. I told you before that this is the one church that I can't seem to find any, any praise or any good, you're, you're doing a great job with this. Laodicea is an interesting place. I, so I visited all seven of these church sites in Turkey many years ago, and Laodicea was my favorite for a variety of reasons because there's so much going on there. Laodicea sits a few miles away from Hierapolis. Hierapolis looks like a, it has these uh, terrace growths of mineral deposits, similar to those of you who might be familiar with Yellowstone National Park in the United States, or if you Google images of Hierapolis or of Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone, you, you get the idea. So it's hot mineral springs spew out this water and it runs through the valley towards uh, Laodicea from Hierapolis and another cold water river comes and they join and then it comes into Hierapolis, or sorry, into Laodicea. By the time the water gets here, what temperature is it? It's lukewarm. Doesn't, and Doesn't that show up in scripture? It, it will show up. And occasionally the mineral deposits that come through in the water would actually uh, cause people to throw up. Now, notice how God is using something that these people would have known very well. He's using a symbol that would mean something to the Laodiceans way more than it would to the Ephesians or those living in Sardis. He says, verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He's using something that was very familiar to those people to teach a message because Laodicea was known in the first century as the city. The, the thing they, they gloried in was we are the city of compromise. 
We are the city of anything goes. We allow anything versus taking a stand. God's like, either you are for me or hot, or you are against me, cold. You can't be in between. You can't be sometimes for me and sometimes against me. You need to make a choice. Now, look, compromise sometimes, actually in many cases, is important. But God is making it clear here, this is a choice about whose side are you on. Back to Joshua. As for me and my household, we will choose the Lord. For the Laodiceans, they're like, as for me and my household, it depends on the day who we might choose. One of the reasons that it's fascinating to visit Laodicea today is you, you can go and find the this central water distribution part of the ruins where you see these pipes where the water would come in and then they would pipe it out with these clay pipes. And you can look at those pipes. In fact, you can Google Laodicea water pipes and you can look at images and you'll see that the clay is like this, but the amount of space for the water to move is only like this because all of the pipe is clogged up and filled with algae, bacteria, little microbes that have grown in this lukewarm, perfect environment to clog up the flow of water. So they were constantly having to replace their pipes because the flow of of water, or in our context, symbolically of revelation, wasn't happening because they were allowing other things to clog up that conduit for the Spirit to flow. Now we jump into chapter 4, and remember, chapters 1 through 3 were set apart as things which were shortly going to come to pass in John's time. So now we jump into things which must be hereafter. So now now it gets exciting. It's high adventure. And the overview here is that John is invited into the throne room of God. And he sees a lot of symbols about uh, those other people who've been invited in. Now, let's just remind you of one way of understanding the throne of God. If you go back to creation, remember it was seven days, the symbol of completion. There was all this chaos. And in the ancient world, they often symbolized the creation story as a battle where God was at war with chaos and he overcome it, overcame it and established peace. And the seventh day is when God enters into his temple and sits on his throne in the Holy of Holies. And that is a symbol that the world is now at peace. Remember, the main theme of the book of Revelation is God overcomes. So if you imagine that this is like a repeat of the creation story, you have six days of where there's chaos, but eventually things will get cleared up. It's not a problem, it's just God is doing his work. And when he completes the work, he will sit down on his throne and there will be peace on the seventh day. And the temple is the symbol of that place. And John is being invited in to the Holy of Holies, to the throne of God, to see the totality of God's enormous glory and goodness and to see what happens when peace is established. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. There should be no question as to who that one is. If you look over at chapter 5, uh, it's very clear that the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. And now watch as John tries to describe 
the grandeur, the splendor, the glory of God sitting on his throne surrounded by numberless concourses of angels. Verse 3 says, and he that sat was, was to look upon like, once again, these words, uh, he's like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. And round about the th throne were these 24 elders, or 24 seats, and upon those seats sat the elders. They were clothed in white raiment, they had on their heads crowns of gold. Joseph Smith, in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, you'll want to make a note in your scriptures, it's a must-see for chapter 4 that you go to Doctrine and Covenants section 77, because when a prophet gives this kind of symbolism that is that could be interpreted so many different ways, it's really nice when we actually get some definitive answers to some of the questions. Joseph s sat down and asked some questions as he was doing the translation of the New Testament, and the Lord gave him some specific answers. So you'll want to read section 77 in conjunction, and you'll notice you're going to find out what the sea of glass is, what the thrones, the, the 24 seats are, who the elders are. He's going to ask a variety of of questions that come up in this chapter as well as others up to chapter 11. So verse 5, you get lightnings, thunderings, voices. There are seven lamps burning before the throne. Remember in the ancient world, all this light and sound were symbols of God's power because humans could not on their own make those things happen. And really in the last 250 years with the Industrial Revol Revol Revolution, the harnessing of electricity, we could do so many powerful things like rockets and so forth. Like for John, this was really mind expanding. For us, we're like, oh, yeah, I see lightning and I can get a really powerful laser beam flashlight. And we have to put ourselves back in a time frame when humans did not have the capacity for awe-inspiring experiences. So here's verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And you get the four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants makes it very clear that the sea of glass represents the glorified earth. So, uh, you're seeing a view of heaven in the future. Four beasts, Joseph was asking this question, are, are we to, what are we to understand by the four beasts? And it's beautiful to see how the Lord responds to that. And so we're encouraging you to take the time to open up the Doctrine and Covenants, go to section 77, and go look and see what God shared with Joseph Smith, and by extension, all of us. Now jumping down to verse 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. So, some symbols. You have the wings, six wings. Wings are in antiquity a symbol of power to act, power to move. It's, it's a symbol of freedom and agency and liberty to not be bound down or, or held down. Eyes. Notice it's not just eyes on their face, it's eyes within. They're full of eyes within. Think about, it, it was uh, President Russell M. Nelson years ago, and also President Boyd K. Packer have talked about this concept in General Conference, that eyes, the word here, ocular or oculate, and where are they? They're in. 
So to inoculate means to put eyes within. President Packer talked about that's why we can send missionaries out into disease-ridden areas in the world without being concerned that they're going to be overcome. It's because they get vaccinated. They have eyes that are placed within. That's what an inoculation is, is to put eyes within to see the danger when it's afar off and to attack it. So what a beautiful concept for us to learn from these angels that they are fully spiritually inoculated against evil. They can see it from afar off when they're browsing on their phone or on their internet, when they're in a conversation with somebody, when they're in a relationship with somebody, they can see evil or temptation or discouragement or despair or fear from afar off because they're spiritually inoculated. They have eyes within. Now the question would come up, Exactly how does one become spiritually vaccinated, spiritually inoculated against these things we've been talking about? And I think if the prophets were to respond to that question, they wouldn't come up with some new spiritual program for us to, to employ in our life. I think they would say, the way you put eyes within is you spend time looking to God through scriptures, serious scripture study, through heeding the words of living prophets through your patriarchal blessing, through the counsel of wise people, good books that teach truth, you get eyes within when you know the truth. The truth will set you free. So the second half of verse 8, you'll notice these angels who have this power to act, who have the eyes within, what do they say? They rest not day and night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Are you noticing the pattern of three being repeated? Holy, holy, holy is one of the ways, among others, in antiquity that you would add this superlative feeling or superlative meaning to uh, a word or to a being. In this case, in English today, we would say our God is the holiest. In antiquity, you would just say holy and then repeat it three times, and that becomes the most of that trait, in this case, holiness. So our God is the holiest, is what those angels just got through saying. And notice how our God is superlatively, superlatively um, existent in time. Was, is, and is to come. All three. He's not bound by any of it. He's above all of it. And then the last two verses of this chapter, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Or perhaps we might use the word joy. So, we look at this scene where God is being worshipped, enthroned in the symbolic temple, the Holy of Holies, where his throne is. And our temples are set up similarly. When you get into the celestial room, it's a symbol of being in God's presence in his throne room. 
And how many of us, when we go into the celestial room, feel like these 24 elders that we want to cast or put to the Lord everything in gratitude that he has given unto us and, and, and then say, Lord, glory to thee. Thou hast done all things for me. What a beautiful, glorious day that will be. Chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. So the, the simplest way to, to visualize this would be a scroll that has seven, seven parts and each part, so here's the, the opening, each of these has a wax seal on it. So you have, and, and you're reading the word book, but if you look this up in Strong's Concordance in a Greek lexicon, it could also be translated as scroll. And books, codices, a codex, they're coming into uh, existence in the towards the end of the first century, but very rare. Mostly it's in the second and third centuries when the book form becomes more common among Christians. So more likely in the ending of the first century that John sees God with this. So what happens is, is if I break the seal here, I can now unroll this part of the scroll, but I can't unroll this until the second seal is broken. And now I can get that one, third, fourth, all the way down to the seventh. Just that is one possible way. It's not, that isn't necessarily what John saw. It's one possible way for us to picture this, this story that John's trying to portray to us, that there are seven periods. And in section 77, Joseph Smith is told these represent thousand year periods. And the thousand isn't probably literal and exact. It's just long periods of time. Because keep in, in mind, the number 10 multiplied by 10, multiplied by 10, the number 10 is a totality. It's a completion that represents a totality. Well, if you do 10 times 10 times 10, it's a superlative of totality, which means everything is completely finished for that first period of time. It doesn't necessarily have to be exactly 1,000 1, years to the day. And to the very minute and, and second. Minute. And three also represents God. So it means that God has fully completed his work for that time period. Go back to the creation. What did God do when he completed in totality the work of each time period? He would say, it is good or it is finished. finished. And that is what's going on here. I also just want to talk for just a minute about the idea of a book. Now, there are books everywhere in our society. In fact, if anything, we have more books than we know what to do with, and, and people would actually don't even like to read books anymore. They want to watch videos and so forth. I want to put your mind back a couple thousand years when fewer people were literate. In, our, in, in the modern world, many people are literate, like a high percentage. In the Western world, 90 plus percent people know how to read. In the ancient world, it wasn't as high. It may have been 10, 20, 30%. You, you have to just think about the miraculous, powerful nature of what a book could do. That somebody's brain, so let's say Tyler is teaching these things and I write them all down, 
suddenly somebody at some other time can get access to these words. It's almost magical or divine. And we don't think about books in some kind of like divine way, but this was a book or a scroll that contained words was one of the most transformative technologies that humans ever encountered. Now today we might think it's cars or electricity or the internet or AI as transformative technologies, and they are. But I want you to think about in the ancient world, the book was the most transformative technology I would propose because of the words in it that humans almost ever could encounter. And this is why it's often used as a symbol of God's power to preserve and act on truth. So just keep that in mind that when we're talking about books, it's something about the divine nature of just almost the, the unexpected nature of what a book can do to provide truth. And of course, the restoration was founded on a revelation put into a book that God once again uses this really incredibly transformative technology called a book to lay the foundation for the restoration. It turns out the Book of Mormon was revealed before the priesthood, before the church was organized, before the Doctrine of Covenants was complete, even before the hymn book was finished. <laughs> it was the Book of Mormon. So as we're learning about the book, these seven seals, that additional perspective might be helpful for you to see God is doing his work and it is divine and beyond comprehension. What good is a book with words that are sealed that you can't get access to? Look at verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So it's totally sealed up in the hands of God, implying that there was some task, some mission to be fulfilled that even God himself, the greatest of all, could not do for us. It needed to be somebody who was both willing and able to go and open these seals. And they're looking and they can't find anybody. So verse 4, John wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. And we'll come back to the description in a minute. Did you pick up on the fact that in verse 5 and 6, you got three symbols all pointing and referencing the same person? A Lion of Judah, the root of David and the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Three symbols that in our natural world don't really have a lot to do with each other, but he's using all three not to say Jesus is a lion, he is a root, or he is a lamb. He's saying a lion is a good symbolic representation of the real thing. A root is very good, as a symbol for what Christ does as the, the vine for us. And the lamb is a beautiful symbol. I love that, that he's, he's not apologizing for using these symbols, he's just, he's telling his story. So here's God on the throne with the book and it's sealed, only to be opened at the right time by the right person, similar to the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. It's still sealed. 
But when the timing is right, the lamb will provide for an opening, a breaking of that seal, and we will get those words that have been preserved for whatever day God has appointed them to be un unlocked. Building on this, I might use the, the symbol of a technologist. Imagine today anybody who's a technologist who's really good at computer programming or inventing and deploying transformative technologies that make your life better. Now, if there was an, a powerful technology that was sitting in front of you, let's call it a computer, and you knew that it was really awesome to give you information and to uh, take care of all sorts of things that mattered in your life, but you had no way of turning it on and operating it. And suddenly, the inventor of the machine comes and actually makes it alive for you, makes it functional, and works it for you. So God is the great technologist. I was just trying to convey that books with words were some of the most powerful transformative technologies in the ancient world. Since that time, we have invented millions of transformative technologies. But God himself is the great technologist who he comes in and he has the ability to work his creation for the benefit of the creation. So I just love how he is the one who invents books, he is the word, and he's the one who can open it up to us to our benefit. And it's, it's probably worth pointing out that just as Taylor said, God is the inventor of, he reveals books and written language and, and this capacity to pass on these ideas. But you'll notice as God created that capacity for us, the devil then comes in and tries to twist it for his own purposes. There are a lot of books out there that, if read and followed, will lead your soul to places you never want it to, to go. Just like the other technologies that God has caused, inspired to be invented, the devil uses those same technologies, those same capacities, to infiltrate his own message. So, hence the need for us to be vigilant with eyes within, to be able to discern, to know which to, to engage with and follow, and which voices and which words and which parts of that technology to reject. Look at his description in the second half of verse 6 of the Lamb. As it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. That's the KJV text. Joseph Smith changed it to 12 horns, 12 eyes. Horns, anciently, are symbolic of power and dominion. You, you think of the, the biggest animals that they could know of in the first century. The bigger, the sharper, the more powerful the horn, on that animal, the more dominion that animal is going to have in that animal kingdom. It, it turns out, again, in the ancient world, the most powerful thing that humans would ever encounter outside of like weather phenomena, waves or lightning or thunder, the most powerful thing a human could ever encounter would be an animal like a bull with horns. Now today, those animals don't really inspire us like it would have anciently. So anciently, the most powerful things they could experience would be a bull with a horn, and so they would use that to symbolize God's ability to enact with power. You'll see bulls in many cultures um, re representing God. So 
the this lamb with these attributes, with this totality, this completion of power, this perfect power and, and perfect vision, what does he do? Verse 7, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. There are some beautiful theological implications going on here. God the Father sitting on the throne holding the book, Jesus Christ symbolized in this context as a lamb coming up to the Father and taking out of the hands of the Father that book with the seven seals. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Beautiful symbolism of your prayers sometimes feeling like they're bouncing off the ceiling, the assurance that your prayers don't bounce off the ceiling. No heartfelt prayer stays stuck on the earth. They ascend to heaven, and they're beautifully symbolized here as these vials, these bowls full of odors and representing those prayers. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by, the bl by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Notice again the number four there, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood out of what percentage of nations? That's 100% of the earth. God doesn't just love one, one portion of his children. And look again at how, what the promise is, the outcome. Remember, God overcomes all, and in that overcoming, verse 10 reminds us again what the final conclusion to the story is. So let's not get too caught up in all the fear and the fear-mongering. Verse 10. Which is so ironic. Because in worldly kingdoms, especially in John's world, every king, every Caesar, every emperor, every leader at any level, whether it's at the empire level or at the, the local magistrate level, they're all about taking power and centralizing it in themselves. They want as much power and glory for themselves, which means less for the other people. But what does the king of kings want? Verse 10, he has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So this is important. When you look around the world today, and the world is in commotion in places, you might look at leaders who are in positions of power and authority. What are they doing? Are they trying to amass more power for themselves and to rule with fear and confusion and division? Or are they trying to empower others? Are they trying to use their position to up lift others and to help as many people as possible, not just a special few or not just those who are in their tribe, but everybody. And if you want to understand who is a godlike leader and who isn't, this is a way of looking at it. Are they acting like God, seeking to uplift everybody to be better humans? It's fascinating to me that in the first century that his focus is on the men becoming kings and priests. And here we live in the dispensation of the fullness of times where God has unsealed additional truths, additional aspects and elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talked about it earlier. Isn't it beautiful that now we no longer just talk about becoming men becoming kings and priests? 
in the dispensation of the fullness of times, additional truth has been poured down onto the heads of the saints by the Lord through his chosen servants, the prophets, the seers, and the revelators that we now talk about becoming kings and queens, priests and priestesses. I like that. Now, verse 11, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. What's going on here is mind-boggling because here's John in this vision. His focus has been on he who sits on the throne with the lamb and the 24 elders and the four beasts sitting in the immediate presence of God. And now the angel draws John's attention to the broader audience and John looks and he says, oh, we have 10,000 times 10,000. Well, if you do the math, it's pretty simple math because all you have to do, if you're gonna multiply that, is just add that many more zeros, one, two, three, four, readjust your commas, and your number is 100 million. Well, if we take it literally, then we say John sees 100 million people and thousands of thousands. So we could probably increase that just however high you want to make it. The reality is, is the Greek word there, murios times murios is myriad times myriad. Wouldn't it be like an infinity times infinity today? That's what it is. It's the biggest number you can think of. It always seems to get translated by the KJV translators as 10,000 because what is the biggest number you could possibly imagine in 1611 without the help of of calculators, computers, and electronic devices? I think 10,000 is a pretty good interpretation of the word murios. But today, I think we can see the expansiveness of God's goodness and wonder and glory to say 100 million people is not even a teeny start to what John is trying to paint for us. He's basically saying it's an innumerable host times innumerable and thousands and thousands. It's his way of saying, I can't possibly put a number on this. Now, why do we care about this? Why do we care to go into the Greek and and do this kind of analysis with scripture? For me, one of the answers to that question is, it gives me hope that God didn't set up a plan of salvation that would only work for and be successful with a small portion of the human population. I love this verse because to me, it increases my faith not only in God, but in humanity, in in loved ones, in, in family members, in friends. Though they may be struggling through certain phases of life, kind of like chaos in the creation or chaos in the first six seals that we're going to cover next week, that God is not perplexed by this, that the Savior's infinite atonement is big enough and powerful enough for all those who are willing to acknowledge him whenever they're willing to acknowledge him. And keep in mind, God is playing the long game, not a short sprint with all of us. It gives me hope in how I can now interact with people and not condemn them and not judge them and not fear for their eternal 
uh, welfare. Many of you probably have loved ones, maybe children or spouses or parents or siblings who have struggled with some serious issues, whatever the, the situation may be. Verses like this should give us hope that the Lord is capable of working with all of us, both collectively and individually, that we don't need to, to preach anybody or condemn anybody into hell, but we can have hope that the Lord is going to keep working with us to be part of this innumerable host one day. Let's move on to verse 12. Singing with a loud voice, this is after he's seen the millions upon millions of people, what are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all they, all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Can you imagine the, the glory and the splendor of all of this? And here's John being commanded to write this in a book. And he's doing the best he can. And the translators gratefully have given us his words to the best of their ability. And so now it's our job to, to do the opposite. Instead of seeing a vision and trying to put it into words, it's now our job and our beautiful task to take these words and with the help of the Holy Ghost, try to put it back into a vision form where we can see in our mind's eye, whatever it looks like for you, a picture of you in the presence of God, giving him praise, giving him glory, and you adding your voice to the mix saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Some of you can hear Handel's Messiah version of that verse playing in your, in your ear. Uh, what a glorious thing it would be if we didn't wait for that day to start more fully doing this kind of, of living, that we could let our life be a reflection of these same ideas here in the fallen world and not wait for that day to praise his name and to give glory to Christ and to be so grateful that he was not just willing, but he was able to come down to this earth and pay the price that he did to be able to open those seals and to be able to break the seal that would unfold the story that is your life, that is now unfolding in the hands of the Lord. Not just you, but your loved ones and your associates as well. God wins. That's the message. And I want to be with him in all that I do, in all that I say, and in all that I become. And that's our hope for all of us. And we leave it with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.